trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. And once again, thank you for taking a chance. Thank you for clicking on the button. And either listening to the live broadcast or, for that matter, listening to the podcast. I'm glad you're part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. This is a message that isn't for everybody. And it's not because it's so exclusive. It's only for the cool kids. And, you know, you're hopefully going to make the cut and be considered one of them. I'm looking for people. And I'm speaking to those individuals who feel a calling. Now, it's not all going to be the same calling. We're not all going to be chanting in unison or anything uh, that mundane. But I'm looking for people who recognize that uh, what's going on around us, this is not just fine. Everything is not just proceeding as normal, and this is the natural course. Everything was supposed to take. I'm looking for those who feel the calling to be an influence for good in whatever your sphere of influence is. And my goal each day is to provide encouragement, to provide a little truth and light, as best as I understand it, and to assure you that whatever whatever is required of you, whatever your calling may be, man, the world needs you. (laughs) It needs you so bad to step up and do what you were born to do. So... If you, if, you, if you tuned in already knowing that, great. You're definitely at the right place. If uh, you've been wondering about it, you're not sure, maybe a little curious, okay, stick around. Stick around. We'll talk about a few things that hopefully will help you sort out whether this is your moment and it's in your interest to, uh, to stand up. By the way, our, our show is brought to you by great sponsors like HSLAmmo.com. That's uh, the ammo company started by my friend Spencer Worthington. Fantastic guy. We are so proud to have him as a sponsor. Also want to thank uh, Pure Light, pure-light.com. These are the most innovative light bulbs I've ever seen in my life. We have them at use in our home right now, and uh, they really work. They, they do the same job as a $1,000 air purifier machine. You can click on the link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com to learn more. Last but not least, i got to give a shout-out to uh, Shannon Brooks and uh, everybody at MonticelloCollege.org for being a sponsor. Fantastic education opportunity. It's not just for kids. This is for anybody who's interested in becoming a truly classically liberated, let me try that again, classical liberal education aficionado. You want to learn how to think, you want to learn how to solve, how to do things for yourself, this is a great way to do it. All right, now that said, let's dive right in here. Um, One of the most uh, interesting and potentially positive changes in our society is something that has come about, especially in the last year, but it was moving in this direction for at least a couple of years prior to that. I'm talking about the phenomenon of working remotely. Now, it used to be that I would have to get in the car and drive into Salt Lake every day to to do my own radio show and to uh, produce other shows for, for other hosts. And I'm not complaining, mind you, that's, that's a pretty cool gig. But the day that I was able to start working from a studio in my own home, <clears throat> let's just say that was a pretty good day when I knew I didn't have to fight Salt Lake traffic <laughs> every day of the week. 
Um, my, my quality of life improved greatly. Now, there are some downsides to working remotely. And those of you who do this regularly understand, you never truly feel like you're done with your work, right? When the office is right there and I can just step in the other room and, you know, get a little bit more done. Things wake you up in the middle of the night. You can take care of it. You can become a little more of a workaholic. But this is a huge shift. And, and I don't want to sound ungrateful because, you know, frankly, it has made my life easier in many ways. My family's in the middle of relocating. And, and the beautiful thing here, I can do what I do from anywhere. All I need is a good, solid internet connection. And, brother, I am good to go. So that's, that's a very positive thing. There's an article published on intellectualtakeout.org. This is from Anders Koskinen. Remote Works Impending Transformation of Middle America. Now, there's some good and bad, but I wanted you to hear his take on this because I think this is, this is a very good analysis. Anders Koskinen writes, The COVID-19 pandemic has changed a great deal about America and <clears throat> excuse me, Americans. Most have acquiesced to anything and everything the, the government bureaucrats have asked for in the name of public safety. Masks have been donned, churches shuttered, many of us stayed at home for months working remotely. Well, he says that last item may end up being the largest and most permanent transformation of the United States. The mobility that comes with remote work may end up transforming middle America as left-coast technologists migrate inward. Freed from their work-based ties that bind them to Silicon Valley and New York City, they can now easily take their jobs and their left-wing politics to the heartland, ushering in a transformative moment or transformative moment, sorry, <laughs> in American politics. Thomas Edsall, writing for the New York Times, discusses how many densely populated urban areas on the coasts are finding that remote work enables them to have big city paychecks while living in suburban or rural areas with lower costs of living. Now, this includes cross-state migration with Californians fleeing to Texas and Illinoisans and New Yorkers making tracks for Florida. The relevant paper from L.A. to Boise found that of the 20 largest movements of people to, from one state to another, 19 of those movements were people moving from blue states to red states. Now, he says, at first that might sound like, hey, there's a vindication of a conservative small government approach to America's pressing issues, or perhaps an endorsement of more rural and mid-American values. Now, that may be true in part, he says, but it's not the primary motivating factor. Instead, it seems economic and lifestyle factors are in play. Many techies realize they can flee the costs, congestion, and craziness of the coasts, like the Bay Area. That's John Austin, director of the Michigan Economic Center, in an email to Edsall. As such, Austin is hopeful that this influx of well-paid liberal technologists into red states will result in those areas evolving to be more progressive, better inoculated against the appeal of right-wing populist demagogues like Trump. Now, Edsall hedges this supposedly good news by noting that this suburbanization or ruralization of Democratic voters is likely to hinder some of the more progressive elements of the party, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, in their efforts to reshape America. Given the leftward lurches of this party in the past few decades, this disclaimer is likely of little comfort to those who live in and love the heartland. When the establishment of the Democratic Party seeks to destroy religious liberty, inflame protests to get more confrontational, or pass a tax plan that will, on average, reduce after-tax income for all taxpayers by 1.9%, the radical left isn't as big of a concern. Instead, it would seem that the leadership of the Democratic Party, or that the leadership of the Democratic Party, that these, migrants, these new migrants into red states 
uh, actually prefer are the ones who are doing the damage. So slight moderation of the left is of little value when its starting point is in such stark contrast to the views and values of ordinary Americans. Now, this is especially true since this demographic shift will allow for more consistent, if not permanent, democratic control of the federal government. There is little to no virtue in incremental change if those small degrees of change constantly accumulate. With no conservative reversal or pause of democratic policy goals, he says America will be transformed more quickly than it has been to this date. I don't know, man, that last year. I'm having a hard time putting a positive face on a lot of the transformation we saw. Anders Koskinen says, not will, or, nor will the exodus of liberal technologists merely affect policies of, that the federal government. Those cross-state moves will throw into contention statewide races previously thought reliably conservative in red states such as Texas, while moves to suburban areas will transform legislative election battles in blue and red states alike and always to the advantage of the liberal ruling class. He says, as new ideas and values begin to enter these rural and suburban communities, it's more important than ever that those already living in these areas form strong bonds. Connecting with your family, neighbors, church, and local associations will make it harder, or will help to make it harder, for the transformation to take place. I like this. That's not enemy-driven thinking. That's, that's actually pretty practical. He says, stand firm in what you believe. If those around you can't convince you to change your beliefs, perhaps you'll convince them to adopt some heartland values instead. You can see why I like this guy's take on things. This isn't about, ah, everybody grab your pitchforks, grab your torches, to battle, to battle. No, you know, if, if, we, can, if we can lose the enemy-driven thinking... That doesn't deny that there isn't a possibility of some, some real danger. And what he describes about people, you know, coming to these rural areas with the idea of we're going to change it all. We're going to make everything, you know, in our image. There are some who bring that. But there are a lot of people who come really sincerely looking for a better opportunity, a better life. And the fact they can work remotely has opened that door. So I'm just going to pose this question. What if instead of seeing them as an enemy to be crushed, we looked at them as a prize to be won. And I'm not talking about we want them all registered and voting Republican like they should be. No, I'm talking about just show them by example what your values are. And see if that doesn't do more convincing than all the political speechifying in the world. It's just a thought. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. Again, I thank you for being a part of our growing audience. Visit the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. These are the show notes for May 20th, 2021. If you'd feel so inclined, hit the subscribe button. It's in the show notes. You can also become a uh, regular contributor or donor or patron to this program, assuming that you find value in it. So we're talking about transformation in the last segment. And, you know, I have to reluctantly say not all transformation is bad. Having said that, though, there are those with big plans, and I'm talking on a global level, of taking advantage of all the panic and all of the, uh, all the upheaval of the last year or so 
to to cause transformation to happen on a global level. You hear the phrase Great Reset. Um, I didn't come up with it. It's not just a conspiracy theory term. This is what Klaus Schwab of the, uh, what is it called? World, do, 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 do. World Economic Forum. Sorry, just needed a prompt there. They're talking about a Great Reset. And, and to, to understand what this Great Reset is about, there's a quote that, that Klaus is, is, is attributed to Klaus Schwab about you'll own nothing and like it. And right there, it's like, okay. Now, on the one hand, it could mean, well, because I'll be, you know, I'll be kept. Somebody's going to be taking care of me. Daddy's always going to make sure that I have what I need. But for those who hear that and think, well, that makes me sound like I'm a pet. Yeah, that's probably closer to reality. And there's no, you know, it's not to say that all government leaders are on board with this, but clearly there are some powerful people who feel like, hey, amidst the uh, crisis here, there's opportunity for us to turn things in our favor. That's why things like the Great Reset have been proposed, and frankly, from the appearance of what's been happening, uh, may have been uh, carried out and and are being carried out. Thomas Luongo, writing for LewRockwell.com, has an article, The Tightening Noose or Widening Gyre of the Woke Revolution. Interesting title. If you're familiar with Yeats' poem, The Second Coming, you know, um, you'll understand that word gyre, that spiral, gyroscopic, uh, you know, twisting and turning. Thomas Luongo says, I expect the Great Reset to fail completely. And he says, I also expect the Great Reset unleashes chaotic forces no one can control. Honestly, it's already done so. He says, look at the headlines today, and, and you can see all the strings pulled by Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum, but you can also see the uncontrolled events which reverberate as consequences. In fact, he says, I think the little conflict between Israel and Hamas, soon to be Hezbollah, qualifies. So does the growing protests against vaccine passports over a virus that just replaced the flu in its actual effects. Alistair Cook recently pointed this out in a piece titled The Tightening Circle of Replacement Politics. He says, quote, One wing to this bird is evident in a powerful and controversial monologue delivered by Tucker Carlson, a leading conservative American political commentator, that's devoted to explaining just why one U.S. party is importing a new, de- new electorate to dilute and replace the existing U.S. electorate, and has been doing so for decades. It is the dominating impulse within U.S. politics, Carson Averis. It is replacement politics, end quote. Now, Tom Luongo says replacement politics is nothing new. Obama used zip code targeting to flood Minneapolis with Somalis. Now they are represented by one in Congress, while the city has been at ground zero for the abdication of responsibility by local government at the direction of the World Economic Forum. Replacement politics has also morphed pretty quickly, thanks to race-baiting during Obama's first two terms into the corporate government, or do I repeat myself, program known as the Woke Revolution. He says the radicalization of maleducated 20-somethings into literal black block-wearing brown shirts was always part of this plan. And the more the Biden or slash Obama administration pushes policies to make life in the U.S. less ordered, the more their ranks can swell regardless of the puppet master's wishes. He says things like this take on a life of their own. Such is the politics of envy and hate. Now, Tom Luongo says replacement politics has been carefully nurtured with money, training, and organization, and the effects of it will be with us long after it burns out. It's been aggressively pursued in Europe. Remember St. Angela Merkel? 
She started this process under the demands of Schwab and George Soros after Obama and then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton blew up Syria and North Africa, Africa rather, quaintly coining the term Arab Spring, and millions across those regions flooded Europe, many just to get away from the fighting. Since then, Merkel has been flip-flopping back and forth, her political fortunes in Germany ebbing and flowing based on how she reacts to shifting poll numbers over this very issue, immigration. He says, if it weren't for Trump being in the White House, I'd almost believe the corona apocalypse would have been sprung on us if only to save Merkel's political career until this year's Bundestag elections, which now look like the increasingly neoconservative Green Party will win. Thomas Luongo says, this is an outcome created through the manipulations and machinations of the WEF, the World Economic Forum, and their dutiful servant, Merkel, who has used the Greens to set policy through their presence across the Bundesrat, that's the German upper house, for years now. Now they're likely to become the dominant party in the next German government, if the polls are anything close to correct. So the thing to try to assess at this point is how much control do Schwab and company still have? He says, because from where I'm sitting and looking at history, these things always spiral out of control. W.B. Yeats' image of the widening gyre in his poem, The Second Coming, rings true here, and there's precious little anyone can do to control the chaos once it starts. I mean, that's what chaos is, after all, by definition. Crook rightly points out that Mao's cultural revolution quickly got away from him and became an absolute mess, which eventually had to be put down. He agrees with me that the fabulous program of the Great Reset, from both a domestic and foreign policy perspective across the U.S. and Europe, will fail. Here's how Crook says it. And it will most likely fail. The stresses imposed on U.S. societal cohesion by the launch of the woke cultural revolution may prove too great. The Chinese cultural revolution, launched by Mao as part of his 1966 purge of party rivals, very quickly devolved into a decentralized, semi-chaotic movement of Red Guards, students, and other groups who shared ideas and programs, but who acted quite independent of the party's central leadership. End quote. Now, Tom Luongo says, for me, the best way to assess what's happening and whether or not we've reached peak woke or not is in entertainment. Artists are the ones most open to shifts in the cultural landscape. The good ones get there first, while the propagandists fulminate and seek to block them from having influence. And the early indicators are that the stresses caused by going woke are forcing major brands to shift course quickly, lest they lose their audience. From a culture war perspective, Woke-A-Cola had to backtrack on its Be Less White training. Disney had to do the same thing. Both are feeling the pinch in their bottom line. Coke will never recover. Disney will because they didn't completely destroy Star Wars. Disney's other major property, Marvel Studios, is thin gruel culturally and iconographically and therefore ultimately irrelevant. It was always beatniks, hippies, and unrestrained spiritual boomerism in four colors. Star Wars matters to the generation on the cusp of taking political power from Schwab's boomers. It's why the anxiety over Disney taking it over was stoked cynically by the big tech firms to divide the fan base. He says, I put nothing past these people. They screwed with Major League Baseball's all-star game, for pity's sakes. You don't think they wouldn't go after a cultural touchstone for a generation like Star Wars? With two good guys who have deep storytelling chops now effectively running Lucasfilm, Dave Filoni and John Favreau, Star Wars will regain the high ground in the culture war over the next decade. But he says the other big fight is happening with over DC's pantheon of heroes. 
there is such internal division within Time Warner over the direction of DC Comics' film universe that Warner Brothers and Warner Media are literally fighting a civil war in the trade press. It's part of what's driving today's $43 billion merger between AT&T and Discovery, which will split off the whole mess, including CNN and HBO, making a pure media company under the direction of Jason Kyler, who greenlit the Snyder cut of Justice League in the first place. That's how much Warner Brothers executives hate Zack Snyder and the basic message of his DCEU films. Chaos is bad. Men need to be strong and unite against madmen who are irredeemable. There's more to this article. We'll come back to it in just a few moments. Again, you can check it out in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. I've been sharing an article here from Thomas Luongo. The tightening noose or the widening gyre of the the woke revolution. I found this on lewrockwell.com. I'm going to skip some of the parts here about, uh, you know, the DC DC universe uh, uh, films and whatnot. But he's he's got a point here about how the woke revolution is actually causing a lot of infighting even in the entertainment industry. And apparently uh, people like Zack Snyder are very hated by management and they're furious about the runaway success across the globe of his uh, version of 2017's Justice League. Which uh, Thomas Luongo says is glorious, by the way. That That movie apparently touched a deep nerve with a lot of people, especially in China. 330 million views in the first seven days and whose release in and of itself feels like an inflection point. Here's the here's the key. Snyder's DC films aren't woke. They're archetypal, meaning the, the, the more this story about how Warner Brothers execs are screwing Snyder over gets out, the worse it looks for them, the more momentum the fans have to get the stories they want, not the stories the powers want to give them. Moving on, though, he says, this brings me back to the tightening noose, widening gyre of replacement politics. Because there is no coming back from what Schwab et al. have unleashed, BLM and Antifa have given rise to the very race war they said they were fighting against. Black on X violence is rising in ugly ways, and when the culture war bus turns back the other way, everyone will get run over. BLM and, unfortunately, those blacks that didn't support it. Now, in any ideologically possessed movement, there is no purity test too stringent to weed out the uncommitted. Purity tests are themselves gyres of increasing intolerance. This is what Mao learned the hard way. And Thomas Luongo says to me, Schwab and his Davos crowd now realize they stepped out from the shadows too early. They're in damage control mode. But their brown shirts will turn on them too. They sense this shift as the political situations across Europe turn ugly in places like France where they had no answer to the failing of President Macron and the French military leaders. Despite neocon bloviating to the contrary, being proud and capable men of honor who won't put up for this too much longer. Even as Davos tries to hold on to the power they've engineered for their insane climate change agenda, the heartland of their woke agenda is boiling over and turning away from them. There is policy inertia, however, we won't overcome easily, and this sets the stage for the chaos of the next decade. 
So today, Bill Gates is being thrown to the hashtag MeTooSharks as chum, hoping that will satisfy our revenge over vaccines that make people sick and don't stop COVID. Tomorrow, it will be Dr. Anthony Fauci for his covering up the origins of COVID-19. The woke revolution will turn on AOC as quickly as they're turning on Bernie Sanders and Nancy Pelosi. Give it another year of BLM, Antifa violence on anyone not them, and they'll be the ones storming the Capitol, and they won't stand around taking pictures and walking within the roped-off areas like the Trump domestic terrorists did on January 6th. Unleashing chaos and believing you can can control it is the ultimate in hubris. But those the gods seek to destroy, they first make mad. A theme that plays very well in Snyder's depiction of Lex Luthor in the unfairly maligned Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, a film sabotaged by its own studio for political and philosophical reasons under feckless leadership. Kind of like the uh, U.S. and Europe today, right? Tom Luongo says, but more importantly, it's also a film that shows us clearly what will happen when a madman like Schwab is thwarted, when his carefully crafted plan falls apart because at the moment of peak madness we're reminded of our shared humanity. He unleashes Doomsday, saying, if man cannot kill God, then the devil will do it. And Tom Luongo says, this is the thing I fear the most. The refusal of men like Schwab to realize when they've lost one war and stoke another. Turning the tightening noose of replacement politics into an intentional gyre which consumes everyone. He says, it's been clear to me for more than a year that no matter what happens in the U.S. politically over the next two years, a weaker U.S. means a world where old enmities are let loose, humanity's darkest impulses encouraged, and there aren't enough people willing to put out the fires. I don't think his concerns are misplaced either, by the way. I think he's, he's got a, a legit concern. However, I believe that you and I are very likely the people who do intend to put out those fires. And that's why I do what I do. And I assume that's why you are, you know, seeking information and seeking, you know, encouragement from programs like this one. You know, I don't want to go fight, fight them head on. I, I'm, I tire of, uh, let's play the political games and see if we can beat them at their own game, you know, in the legislatures. I find myself doing what uh, it appears a, a number of other people are doing, and that is I am simply trying to position myself at this point to live as independently of their rules as possible. I'm talking serious self-reliance. And, and the crazy thing about it is, you know, my hand is likely to be forced, not over, you know, political considerations so much as it'll come in the form of, well, uh, Mr. Hyde, you don't have your vaccine passport. Uh, we can't let you into the grocery store to get food for your family. I mean, that, that sounds like, like craziness, right? Or at least a couple of years ago, no, they would never do anything like that. But can you look back over the last year and say with confidence, yeah, that's, that's a non-starter. That would never happen. So that's, that's what my approach is. I am going to continue to bang the drum for freedom. I'm going to continue to become an unplayable piece on their chessboard. And the rules such as they make, well, that's interesting, but totally irrelevant to what I'm doing because I have a life to live. And by example, I'm going to encourage as many people as possible to consider doing that for themselves. All right, moving on. Let's talk a little bit about uh, crusades. I don't know if you've noticed, but every few years, there's another crusade of some sort. Brian Kaplan's been paying attention, and he has some very solid advice on how to avoid being swept up in the latest crusade against your will. Considering that we live in a world that's ruled by hysteria and hurting, uh, this is good stuff to know. 
Brian Kaplan says every five years or so, the United States has a major societal-wide crusade. Sometimes it's a shocking event. Other times there's an ongoing evil. Either way, all Americans are supposed to join forces and take decisive action to win the crusade. And even if you can't personally do anything, you're supposed to get very angry. You're supposed to be very angry about the problem. You're supposed to be very angry about anyone who stands between us and victory. You're supposed to angrily support our crusaders. And you're supposed to be very angry about the people who aren't very angry. So he says, here's a list of all the full-blown crusades I personally recall in chronological order. Yeah, there's a line-drawing problem, so if you think I've missed one, he says, please share it in the comments. So, First Crusade, Islamist Iran. When Iranian students took over the American embassy and took workers hostage, even kids under 10 were angry. Something had to be done. And when the hostage rescue mission failed, he says, my parents broke their no TV at dinner rule because they needed to know what happened. A popular t-shirt actually read, vote yes for Lake Iran. Number two, how about this crusade, the war on drugs. Beginning in the 70s and throughout the 80s, my schools were covered in anti-drug propaganda. So were billboards all over L.A. Everyone was supposed to be vigilantly searching for drug dealers offering free samples of hard drugs in suburban elementary schools. He says my school board, or my high school rather, hired hired Dave Toma to preside over an apocalyptic anti-drug revival meeting for the whole school. Yes, we remember that crusade. Just say no. Number three, free Kuwait. When Iraq invaded Kuwait, American society flipped out again. Back then, I doubt most Americans even knew the difference between Iraq and Iran, but they were still enraged. If you opposed action, the knee-jerk question was, well, what do you propose to do? Even most anti-war activists would glumly respond, give sanctions time to work. He says, when I stopped by my old high school, my history teacher had a free Kuwait bumper sticker on his podium. Then there's the war on terror. The aftermath of the dissolution of Yugoslavia never attained crusade status, but though the Kosovo War came close, how many times did I hear the contemporary media use the phrase ethnic Albanian Kosovars? 9-11, however, he says, launched the biggest crusade of my lifetime. Flags and stickers and bloodthirsty opinions were everywhere. He says, my dad was visiting me when the U.S. started bombing Afghanistan. Mom phoned him to let him know the U.S. attack had begun, and he gushed, it's about time. The next one was the Iraq War. Almost everyone vocally supported the destruction of the Taliban, but the crusade to unseat Saddam Hussein, in contrast, sparked mild domestic resistance and massive domestic counter-resistance. The Congressional War Authorization vote won by more than two to one. The Dixie Chicks got canceled before being canceled was a thing. The next big crusade, the 2008 financial crisis, TARP was controversial, but primarily because so many people wanted to bail out Main Street as well as Wall Street. Other than Scott Sumner, almost no one wanted to hear about simple technocratic fixes like nominal GDP targeting. Okay, i got to write that one down because I have no clue what that is. Now, of course, you can remember the crusade of COVID. And he says, I don't count opposition to Trump or Brexit as a crusade because public opinion was always sharply divided. But the COVID crusade, in contrast, went from a minor issue in February 2020 to the end of the world by April. And while it may seem like there's been debate, it's the hysterical consensus that stands out. All 50 states declared a state of emergency. And even today, I'm vaccinated, so I should be exempt from these rules, remains a heretical position. There's a couple more. We'll come back to him just the other side of the break. Is that giving you a little uneasy feeling to recognize he's right? We do have these crusades on a regular basis. You can probably guess what the next one is. 
I won't spoil the surprise. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back. I'm sharing with you an article from uh, Brian Kaplan, Crusades and You. And, you know, if you look around and somebody points out, do you realize all the different crusades that have taken place just in our lifetimes? I think uh, Brian Kaplan has hit uh, all of them right on the head. There may be a few he's missed, but the ones he's hit, definitely, yep, that sounds like it was a crusade, and I recognize him. Uh, the, the one that came after COVID, Black Lives Matter. Now, until George Floyd, this was just one popular issue out of many. Now, almost a year later, he says, I continue to encounter heavy-handed anti-racist propaganda and bizarre explanation attempts, or expiation attempts, rather. The police publicly murder an innocent man, so all of the black characters on The Simpsons have to be voiced by black voice actors. In Derek's fall, we sinned all. Now, he says, when I classify X as a crusade, This obviously doesn't mean the events that sparked the crusade didn't happen, nor does it mean that the events weren't bad. What it means, rather, is that the public reaction was highly emotional and hence deeply unreliable. See, once a crusade is underway, you can no longer comfortably ask pertinent questions like, wait, how bad is this event on a 0 to 10 scale where 10 is the extinction of humanity? Or what are the odds that our efforts will make things worse? Or are we mistreating bystanders? Bystanders, rather? And a fundamental principle of effective altruism is that you should always ask such questions. Now, he says, I wish I could say that I've opposed every one of these crusades, but that's not true. Alas, I was an earnest drug warrior as a child. Indeed, I favored summary execution for even the smallest drug offense, which freaked out even some of the adults in my life. Though I never freaked out an adult enough to make him admit, well, drugs are bad, but they're not summary execution bad. Still, he says, I saw the error of my ways before turning 18. I realized I was dead wrong about the war on drugs, and I've had the sense to spurn each and every subsequent crusade. Verily, you will not stampede me. But he asks, how popular are these crusades really? On reflection, most Americans probably support all crusades unleashed during their adult lives. After the fervor dies down, they may feel occasional regret. But selective amnesia is far more prevalent, and it's hard not to look down on such sheeple. Yet shouldn't we all be equally critical of folks like me who oppose every crusade that comes along? He says you might even, quote, inherit the wind, which ends by hinting that cynics are even worse than fanatics. So for what it's worth, here's his answer. He says, in a world where opinion leaders take effective altruism to heart, we should indeed look down on those who stubbornly refuse to support well-vetted, self-aware causes. But since the real world is ruled by hysteria and hurting, there's a strong built-in presumption that any crusade popular enough to get off the ground is unworthy of your support. And since most of us thankfully only live through a dozen or so crusades per lifetime, you shouldn't be surprised if exactly zero of them surmount that presumption. It's an interesting take, and I'll have a link to it in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Something that, I think it was Brian Kaplan who pointed this out before, about, hey, just because I don't jump on board with your crusade does not make me a bad person. I mean, I feel like I'm fighting a crusade. I'm, I'm trying to, to make popular things which I believe are sound. Things like personal liberty, freedom of conscience, things like private property rights, things like free market economics. 
these are things that uh, I definitely crusade to help people better understand, or at least understand. This is these aren't the boogeyman, and they aren't the respons- responsible for all the ills in the world, like we're sometimes told. But I don't make people feel guilty, or at least I don't intend or try to make people feel guilty and feel like they are bad, evil people, literally Hitler, if they're not, you know, beating the drum right alongside me. I'd like to think I've matured enough to where I'm trying to persuade people this is the better way. And that's not a requirement that they think that way. It's just I'm going to live my life according to these principles and practices. And hopefully you'll be able to see that, uh, hey, he seems remarkably calm, maybe even happy. All right, moving on. One last article here. And, and I have to start this one out by saying education and skill building, these are good things. But they're things that tend to lose value when politicians start to hand them out like there are so many party favors. Robert Weisberg says, beware, free community college will only make things worse. He says, like nearly all Americans, President Joe Biden believes that a college degree is the ticket to both individual and economic advancement and uplifting the poor. So to put his money where his mouth is, he's proposed $256 billion in government funding to cover two years of public community college plus cash for living expenses. In an instant, an improved workforce and less economic inequality. What could go wrong? Well, plenty, as critics note. But left unsaid in this opposition is an awkward reality. Free classroom instruction will not elevate a deficient workforce. Ask any business owner or manager about hiring decent help. He says, I myself owned and operated a small retail business for 14 years. They all complain about finding workers with adequate soft skills, not sufficient book learning. Yes, there are some technical skills only available via classroom instruction, but for most of the workforce, particularly at the lower rungs, on-the-job training usually suffices. Now, enumerations of these soft skills often vary, but all employers have a pretty good idea of what they entail. Intelligence is vital. While employees need not be rocket scientists, they must be able to pick things up quickly and figure out new situations. Stupidity cannot be fixed by mentoring, training, pay boosts, or any other intervention. Hiring a dummy is worse than hiring nobody. Same can be said for honesty. Yes, a business might tolerate some employee theft or a little lying, but there are limits. A further import are such personal virtues as dependability, punctuality, taking initiative, dutifulness. What do you do with a new hire too lazy to learn required skills? Can anyone successfully run a business where employees regularly skip work, arrive late, depart early, drink on the job, mismanage their time, or spend hours gossiping on cell phones? He says managers and business owners are also aware of how employees can undermine the cohesion necessary for a healthy bottom line. Try holding meetings with thin-skinned, hypersensitive workers who chronically complain about discrimination or unfair treatment, especially if these workers routinely avail themselves of government intervention to reverse this alleged harm. Or try dealing with employees whose thorny personalities and egos disrupt teamwork. He says, in my business, I recall commission-obsessed salespeople who angered co-workers by hogging customers while neglecting non-commission but essential tasks like straightening up inventory. Sports teams know full well about the hazards of talented players whose selfish behavior hinders team success. Better to trade such disruptors to some other team. Now, there are no doubt other vital soft skills, but they all share one thing in common. None will be taught in a community college. There are no classes in good manners or dressing appropriately, let alone speaking clearly. 
In fact, the opposite may be true if the school tolerates indolence to keep government tuition money flowing. It's all too tempting to overlook erratic attendance or cheating if Washington's checks just depend on the body count. Under such considerations, or under such conditions rather, students learn the very opposite of what makes for a desirable employee, so all this free money actually subverts Biden's supposed goals. Underlying this mismatch between college and what employers need is culture. Soft skills reflect a distinctive culture, and not everyone embraces this culture. Honesty is not a universally admired trait, nor is punctuality, neatness, a strong work ethic, agreeableness, or multiple other soft skill traits so necessary to running a successful enterprise. Now, even if community colleges recognize the importance of imparting these traits and possess the recipe for the secret sauce, this task would likely be rejected as cultural imperialism or, to be blunt, imposing whiteness on people of color. Besides, not everybody can be punctual, and that understood, perhaps workplaces should make reasonable accommodations for sloth and other similar costly inclinations, just as they are now legally required to accommodate those with certain physical disabilities. In today's litigation-happy environment, any employer who refuses to provide such accommodations risks expensive government scrutiny and potential financial settlements. So it's easy to imagine employees refusing to learn necessary job skills and insisting they suffer from some murky learning disability precluding them from mastering a computerized cash register. Unfortunately, while this soft skill problem is universally known among employers, it's nearly unspeakable in public. No business owner can say that the local talent pool is hopelessly intellectually challenged and beyond help. Such honesty contravenes the current political dogma that all problems are fixable via education, And educational fixes will succeed if we just spend enough money. It's taboo to even hint that many of the poor suffer from intractable problems, making them unsuitable for a modern economy. Robert Weisberg concludes by saying, All in all, Biden's solution is just what you'd expect from a government careerist who never ran a business. As far as he's concerned, hiring more teachers at government expense will make the dumb smart and the lazy energetic. I don't even know where to go from there because that was just so well stated. (laughs) I mean, look, uh, making education free isn't going to make people value it. What's going to make people value it is when they realize that that is their key to becoming the most excellent version of themselves that they can become. And what's even more important is when they realize that that education can take place on their own time, not necessarily sitting in a formal classroom. That's the beauty of the classical liberal arts education. It's lifelong. It's self-directed. It's out of government's hands. This is The Brian Hyde Show.